For those of you who have been listening to the Brett Easton Ellis podcast, you know I've been telling you about The Great Courses Plus for a while now. If you still haven't signed up yet, now is the perfect time because you can get a free month of unlimited access to The Great Courses Plus. The Great Courses Plus offers on-demand video lectures across hundreds of topics presented by award-winning professors. You can learn about anything that interests you, whether it's literature, history, art, photography, and you can learn at your own pace, anytime, anywhere. The Great Courses Plus offers thought-provoking courses on all topics, including the one I recently watched called The Art of Storytelling, which shows you how effective storytelling incites questions and dialogue like a work of art. It also reveals the best storytelling techniques that work in any setting. As one of my podcast listeners, when you sign up today, you'll immediately get one month free of unlimited access to all of their lectures. Check out The Art of Storytelling or whatever interests you for free. I want you to start your free month today, so go to thegreatcoursesplus.com slash brett. That's B-R-E-T. Remember, thegreatcoursesplus.com slash brett. The following program is a podcast1.com production. Rock y'all, non-stop y'all, to the beat y'all, the body rock y'all, the legs rock y'all, non-stop y'all, to the beat y'all, the body rock y'all, the legs rock y'all, non-stop y'all, to the beat y'all, the body rock y'all, the legs rock y'all, non-stop y'all, to the beat y'all, the body rock y'all, the legs rock y'all, non-stop y'all, to the beat y'all, the body rock y'all, the legs rock y'all, non-stop y'all, to the beat y'all. I'm Brett Easton Ellis, and you're listening to the Brett Easton Ellis Podcast, and I'm at the Podcast One Studios in Beverly Hills with my guest, Moby. Florence Foster Jenkins, the new Stephen Frears movie starring Meryl Streep, is a very rare thing at the movies in 2016, a competent and consistently entertaining crowd pleaser made with A-list talent on a somewhat grand scale for adults. It costs $20 million to make and maximizes it with lavish period detail, and it has already made close to $30 million here and abroad and has yet to open wide in the U.S. It's by no means great and ultimately is a problematic movie, but you may realize this only after you've been seduced by the old-fashioned analog craftsmanship supplied by Frears, a major director who is now 75, and Streep, who is now 67. 
Street plays Florence Foster Jenkins, a real-life American heiress, socialite, and amateur singer during the last year of her life in 1944, when she's 76, and who had been a cult figure in New York during the 1920s and 30s and 40s because of her technical incompetence. She was an absolutely terrible singer, a soprano, no less, who had zero talent regarding pitch, rhythm, sustaining notes, or phrases. But because of this, she became a major novelty act. And the movie argues that she was completely unaware that her severe lack of talent is what made her a must-see performer, with crowds both laughing at her and cheering her on in tandem. Jenkins decided to believe one narrative over another. And her loyal fans included Cole Porter and Enrico Caruso, while her accompanists on piano, Cosme McCoon, played by Simon Helberg, desperately kept up with Florence, making in-the-moment adjustments to compensate for her constant off-tempo variations and caterwauling. You never knew where a song was going to take Florence. And Jenkins was protected by her domestic partner, St. Clair Bayfield, played by Hugh Grant in his best screen performance, acting as her manager, who the movie portrays, was someone who made sure Florence never learned the truth about what people really thought of her singing, bribing patrons and writers and critics to respond favorably to her, cocooning her in a self-made bubble, protecting her from the reality of the response she received from a large part of her audience. He created a fake world for his beloved so she could thrive and bloom, so she could forget the keen disappointments of her life and the pain of her young adulthood, which has forever scarred her both physically and mentally. And yet it must be said Florence never let this scarring define her. She was certainly nobody's victim. Florence is an unironic survivor, a life force, the movie argues. And maybe she was, or maybe she wasn't, but of course she is, because she's played by Meryl Streep, who gives a glorious camp performance that is both totally sincere and completely committed. I love the comic performances Meryl Streep began giving in the late 80s, early 90s, She-Devil, Postcards from the Edge, Death Becomes Her, but she's looser and more free now, and gives a kind of joyous what-the-hell performance that you don't see a lot of anymore in prestige pictures like this. Everyone has become so grim and careful. And when she starts singing as Florence, she's the funniest she has ever been. Freers, like an old pro, masterfully teases out this moment before we actually hear Florence sing in her parlor room while auditioning accompanists in one of the first scenes in the movie, about 10 minutes in. And when Streep finally unleashes this voice to shocked newcomer McCoon, it is the funniest scene I've seen in movies this year. In fact, whenever Streep goes into one of her delirious arias, this is the funniest movie of the year. I can't imagine another actress daring to pull this act of total self-delusion off with such crazy nutso physicality, dressed in wings and tinsel and flowers, gyrating her elderly hips, her hands fluttering with emotion. There's so much goodwill here that you can't help but give in. And you begin to actively resent the people, the evil critics, the bitchy society crowd who want to tell Florence the truth. The movie squarely places you on her side. A year ago, last summer, Streep starred in another movie about a mediocre singer, the Jonathan Demme-directed Ricky and the Flash, written by Diablo Cody. But Florence Foster Jenkins is smoother and much easier to take. Ricky and the Flash was an awkward boomer elegy about boomer perseverance. Florence Foster Jenkins is both more specific and also more universal. But this is where the problems lie. For Freers, this movie exists somewhere between his other hit movies about elderly women. The Queen, a minor but near-perfect movie with Helen Mirren as Queen Elizabeth, dealing with Diana's death in that redefining week of 1997, and Philomena, a too-cute-by-half and overly sentimental pool of pathos 
with Judy Dench as the mother of an orphaned AIDS victim. And at times it's hard to believe this once renegade filmmaker who was behind My Beautiful Laundrette, Prick Up Your Ears, Dangerous Liaisons, The Grifters, and two Roddy Doyle adaptations really buys into this airy confection. But maybe Frears was drawn to the confusion that ultimately lies at the heart of this movie because it is impossible not to notice that in this moment, and whether you want to see this or not, this is, yes, a movie about white privilege and what it can buy you. And since we are so much on the side of Streep as Jenkins and the movie itself, we can watch the movie without becoming too uncomfortable about the irony of this hovering everywhere. And I guess it is supposed to be wrenching and borderline tragic when Florence accidentally comes across the ruse her beloved has carried out for her during these years, seeing Streep as Jenkins floundering around, holding a bundle of papers she's pulled out of the trash, filled with terrible reviews of a recent concert performance, and then totters over and faints in the lobby of her building, overcome with the reality of it all, well, you can find it sublime or ridiculous, or you can find it to be a bit of both. You can find it as the moment the movie acknowledges the irony of its white privileged protagonist, or perhaps it just devolves into sentimental melodrama. But to offset this notion of white privilege, the ads for the movie have championed something more disturbing and pervasive in the culture. And that is the idea that everyone has a voice that needs to be listened to, that everyone needs to be heard, that everyone should have a shot, that everyone, no matter how talentless, should get to play at Carnegie Hall, which is exactly what happens at the climax of Florence Foster Jenkins, and which was sold out weeks in advance with at least 2,000 people turned away at the door in October of 1944, most of them delighted by the prospect of watching the novelty act that Florence herself never thought existed. She thought people really liked her, and that she was as good a singer as people were paid to tell her. If there is a metaphor you can locate that mirrors the contemporary world, then Florence Foster Jenkins and the way it is marketed locks into the worst fairy tale fantasy of millennial culture, and which is why it might become a big hit with younger audiences instead of only with the AARP crowd. And this message is, yes, little snowflakes, everyone is a very special snowflake, and every snowflake voice needs to be heard and championed and loved. The difference is that Florence Foster Jenkins wasn't a narcissist, and she wasn't aiming for ideology in order to prove or victimize herself like so much of millennial culture does. She just wanted to have fun. Fun. Oh, yes. Does anybody remember fun? Watching the soullessness of the MTV Video Music Awards the other night, a program that did not contain one single fun or compelling performance. In fact, barely 24 hours later, I can only tell you that, yes, Beyonce, Rihanna, Britney, and Nick Jonas performed somewhere along the line, but I can't remember anyone else. You would have barely noticed that there were, in fact, a couple of legitimately interesting videos nominated, especially Kanye West with his epic 10-minute famous video, The Year's Most Daring Provocation. Even though Lena Dunham called it one of the more disturbing artistic efforts in recent memory in an alarmist Facebook post, and she went on and compared it to a snuff film in its depiction of naked women as if the nude images of Donald Trump and Kanye West and Chris Rock in the same video aren't far more disturbing than Taylor Swift or Anna Wintour. I really, really hope that Lena Dunham does not start turning into the Andrea Dworkin of our generation, yet another young feminist social justice warrior at work, finding women as victims seemingly everywhere. 
But it seemed as if the MTV Awards were a shrine to this kind of thinking as well, going way out of their way to extol female empowerment, which is getting very, very boring. And I'm not going to say it's the reason that the ratings for the VMAs were down 35% this year, but I'm going to ask who in the hell was the show for this year? There was nothing disturbing or shocking, no blurred lines or a stoned Miley bitching it out on stage with Nikki. There was no kind of rupture and therefore no kind of fun. Everyone got along in the kind of fake solidarity and fake inclusiveness that doesn't exist, but that MTV and corporate culture wants to extol, and which my favorite 22-year-old provocateur felt the need to denounce in an email to me, like he did with last year's VMAs at the beginning of the Kim Gordon podcast, and which really echoed what so many people felt about this year's dreadful variety show. This uh, millennial wrote, and I'm quoting here, and this is a much more abbreviated text than what I read last year, and I do not agree with everything he espouses. Quote, the Black Lives Matter Sabbath that was the 2016 MTV Music Awards dawns at the end of our culture as we know it. The entire show was an ode to the liberal systematic narrative that is white people are bad. So let's just make every other person on the screen a black female because we are just so terrified of threatening our millennial demographic raised on a diet of trigger warnings and safe spaces and self-victimization. Almost every frame in the show alluded to third-wave feminism and women's empowerment. This was totally fake and corporate, but this is the end result of capitalism because the MTV Awards are now officially the system. The show's mask was to make everyone seem like a good person via pandering references to Black Lives Matter, police brutality, Martin Luther King. This was the script, the dogma, which is all about obeying, obeying the script and the fear you could feel hovering over everything if anyone dared to flip it. And this is what is killing the culture right now, the fear of punishment for not adhering to groupthink ideology, the fear of not adhering to the corporate culture status quo. As for the performers, who did I even like? Pretty much no one. Ariana's performance was horrific. She couldn't even hold a note because she was so out of breath, possibly stoned off white rapper Mac Miller's kush. Kanye didn't perform, but gave an autistic speech in which he compared himself to Henry Ford and Walt Disney, and it wasn't even funny. It was sad and part of the authoritarian black power pseudo-artist costume that has his spellbound audience buying his clothing line and believing they are the new gods for posting selfies and causing some kind of mild controversy online. Do nothing. Just be a brand. Kanye premiered a new video, and it was just as boring as everything else. Sex is not shocking. Porn is not shocking. But abusing the two could be, but that mindset wasn't allowed on the MTV Awards. Britney's return to the VMA stage for the first time in 10 years was an absolute insult to the thrilling possibility of reenacting her hot and mysterious and banned David LaChapelle video. Instead, we got a squeaky clean silhouette flipping her hair and covering g Easy's recent number one single. Britney's big moment robbed by a newcomer. MTV yet again giving us something safe and boring from someone who once chanted, I'm a slave for you, with a python around her neck, and who changed pop iconography forever. But MTV doesn't want us to receive any dangerous pop imagery because they are scared of offending, unless it falls under the safety hood of politically correct. The problem is pop music should offend. Pop music should not be politically correct. But in 2016, MTV decided America could not handle a feminine white woman asking for a bunch of sweaty men to degrade her and yet also control the moment. 
Why did MTV censor Britney's classic blonde bimbo sexuality and yet allow Nicki Minaj and Ariana pushing down the heads of two male dancers in front of their pussies? How liberal, how revolutionary, what a feminist statement, how exciting. This was basically third wave shopping mall feminism encapsulated by the high priestess of virtue signaling Beyonce, who did the live action version of her video album Lemonade that ended with all of her dancers holding her up, the symbol of female power. Even more disturbing was hearing the multiple hosts repeating slay, slay, and Beyonce the queen, and killed it, and all hail, all hail. Is it so wrong to be suspicious of Beyonce, or is that automatic racism? On a final note, Rihanna was sexy, and her performances were fun, because she almost knew she was too cool to be there, and seemed to not care if she got the Vanguard Award or not, MTV's Lifetime Achievement Award, even though Rihanna is 28. Fuck MTV, and fuck the VMAs, unquote. Thank you, Alex, and though I don't agree with everything, I have been on the receiving end of being attacked because I didn't like a black filmmaker or a female filmmaker simply because I didn't like their aesthetics, and have been branded slowly because of that a racist and a sexist. Welcome to the world where ideology trumps aesthetics. Isn't it fun? Oh, so much fun. And it creates such great art too, doesn't it? And please, you will never convince me that Formation was a better video than Famous or Hotline Bling. Why do you think it won, duh? What does this have to do with Moby? Watching the MTV Awards, you wondered, how did we get here? Where were the good songs? How did music get so bad? Does any of it really matter anymore? The message trumps aesthetics. The message isn't the aesthetic. The message is ideology. And it reminds you again that, yes, a video, a song can be watched 20 million or 100 million or 1 billion times on YouTube. But there is something undeniably disposable that is inherent in all aspects of the culture. And for some of us in a certain demo, it can take you back to 1999 and 2000, the year Moby's record Play dominated the music scene in a way that albums just do not anymore. Whether it's Kendrick or Beyonce or Kanye or Drake or Frank Ocean, though oddly enough, Taylor Swift was able to put into play a record that actually did dominate the conversation for over a year, tellingly titled 1989. Play was an electronic dance music masterpiece that spawned nine singles and was endlessly played as the de facto soundtrack at the end of the century. It is hard to remember this era without its songs informing everything in that moment, and it sold upwards of 12 million copies and went platinum in more than 20 countries, and every one of its songs was licensed to various films, advertisements, TV shows, and nonprofit groups. What is noticeable about listening to Play Now is how unbelievably beautiful it sounds compared to anything that is out now in the pop market. Epic and widescreen gorgeous and incredibly emotional, it's impossible not to respond to its melodic pull. Records do not come along like this anymore, and it is one of the last major works before YouTube redefined the industry. The idea of the album versus the single 
and the sustained interest in a work of musical art. Moby has a very good memoir out now called Porcelain, though it stops just short of the recording of play, letting us drift on a cliffhanger moment of Moby drunk and defeated by the disastrous reception of his last record, Animal Rights, in 1996, which had him contemplating leaving music forever and going back to school to study architecture. Moby had a modest hit record selling a quarter of a million copies in 1995 called Everything is Wrong, and the success of that record creates the suspense of this memoir. It is the anchor. It is what we, the readers, want for this young man protagonist, and it supplies the heady success a rock bio depends on and also lends it the just as suspenseful downfall where our hero enters into a world that had been denied him and starts getting fucked up, makes a very personal artistic statement that bombs, And we now end with him on the verge of a comeback. Haven't we all been there? It's also a portrait of a long-ago New York from the 1990s. The action of Porcelain takes place over roughly that 10-year period, a place that now seems as distant as the Jazz Age or the swinging 60s. Moby has relocated to Los Angeles, where he now lives, and we have been meaning to record a podcast for some time. But due to scheduling problems, uh, we finally decided to do it today. So um, the first thing that I want to ask you, Moby, out of the blue is, how does it feel to be a white, privileged, cisgender, heterosexual male in 2016? Well, on one hand, um, I'm feeling a little bit smug because I just recently learned what cisgender means. <laughs> um, I was dating someone who um, explained to me cisgender. And so... Okay, so what, what was the list of well, appellates well, look, there? Cisgender is the big one that so many men, especially heterosexual men, have to uh, kind of adopt and accept in a way uh, mm-hmm. in terms of the language, please. Um, white, privileged, cisgender, <laughs> heterosexual male. The question is a bit of a joke. But in a way, it's not because there is a kind of pressure against this particular group. That's undeniable right now. I mean, it's it's hard for me to feel uh, too victimized. You know, I mean, there's irony attached to it or sort of paradoxical irony, which is I grew up poorer than almost any person I've ever met. Yes. You know, like I was on food stamps. I was on welfare. Um, in the late 80s, early 90s, I would work with rappers and they would come to my studio in my abandoned factory where I lived and I had no running water. I was making $3,000 a year. So – even though I come from this long, ostensibly inbred, waspy lineage, which should convey privilege, you know, like I'm related to Herman Melville yes. and Peter Gansevoort, but I grew up on food stamps and welfare, and now I drive an electric car and live in Los Feliz. So there's evidence of privilege, but empirical support for the idea that I've also lived without privilege. So how it feels... Uh, I mean, I only know – I only have my perspective, you know, mm-hmm. and and that makes me a little hesitant to claim anything like even approaching victimhood. Of course. You know, um, because I've never been African-American. I've never yes. been Muslim. I've never been a woman. I've never – like there, so there are issues that come along with what we'll call sort of like – I don't want to say disenfranchised, but like historically disenfranchised demographics. And because I've never experienced that, the best I can do is sort of cautiously have a, a gentle opinion about what that might be like. Right. So that was such a Switzerland neutral answer I just gave you, but well, come on, it was a it was a strange question to just throw out there. Before we get to porcelain, uh, I, I want to first of all, I cannot imagine you watching the Video Music Awards, uh, but 
I guess what I'm interested in is what are your feelings about the pop landscape today compared to when you kind of ruled over in that moment? I mean, do you even pay attention anymore? And are you glad you existed when you did compared to what's going on today? Well, it's tricky. And again, I'm not trying to be too, like, blandly self-effacing, but, like, I am, as a 50, almost 51-year-old man, I am not a part of the Video Music Award demographic. So, like, when I look at the Video Music Awards, and it, it just quite literally means nothing to me. Yes. Like, there's certain things in life that just don't register. You know, that like, there's just, like, this complete neutrality. And for me, pop music and pop culture, if, if there's such a thing as having a opinion, like, I'm... I'm I'm agnostic and neutral regarding most popular culture because there was a paradigm shift that happened. I, I'm very much stating the obvious. I guess it was about 10, however many years ago, when when you and I were growing up, and this is a dangerous thing for like an old white guy to say, mm, like yes. to say like, oh, things were better when I was young. But when we were growing up, there was a trajectory, I think, for the most part, which was odd, idiosyncratic people made something, whether it was music, art, film, literature, that was a product of their oddness and idiosyncratic nature, and that their creation propelled them to fame. And then the paradigm shift was when good-looking people became famous for being good-looking and then used their fame to make stuff. Mm -hmm. So like the creation followed the fame as opposed to the fame following the creation. Mm -hmm. And when that happened, like, so now art and culture has become a bizarre spectator sport where people are more focused on the famous person as opposed to anything they might have created. Like, everyone just knows that, like, all these pop stars, like, their music is pleasant to hear in the gym, but you never cry to it. Yes. You never define yourself by it. You never cut your hair according to it. You never get a tattoo or move across country. You never be motivated by passion around any of this banal pop music. You know, the passion that people have is for the personalities. And that's just not very interesting to me. No, it isn't very interesting. And I've been dealing with this uh, professionally because I was, uh, I've been directing a web series That'll be, yes, released in November. And I have been dealing, interestingly enough, with YouTube personalities, Vine stars. Mm -hmm. um, these are young men and women who literally have 25 million sets of eyes on anything they do, anything they put on Instagram. You know, uh, Cam Dallas is a, a very nice young man. I, who I, I know all about it because – and this is like the <laughs> perfect cisgender privilege white guy way of knowing about this phenomena. <laughs> there was quite an elaborate New Yorker article mm -hmm. a couple of years ago mm -hmm. about the Vine YouTube phenomena. Yeah. Apart from that New Yorker article, I would know nothing. I didn't even know what Vine was. Do you think, and again, before getting to the mem memoir, do you think Play could have been as successful and lucrative if it had been released today instead of 1999? I have no idea. I mean, because the truth is it never should have been successful. Correct, right. You know, it was, I made it, I had a loft on Mott Street, and I had my studio set up in my bedroom, and I made that record in my bedroom with really cheap, barely functioning equipment, and it was released into a climate similar in terms of pop music to today like britney was huge backstreet boys and sync limp biscuit so i released this odd little record and somehow it succeeded and i whether that would happen now i have i, I doubt it 
but I have no idea. Yeah, but I think it also succeeded because there was an actual goodness to it. It did not really sound like anything else. And there was really nothing else to compare it to it. It kind of bumped things up into a different level. It was kind of a, to use the dreaded term, game changer in a way. And it really did resonate with so many people. I was just talking, I was, I've been in the, in, in the editing room where I'm working with a, a number of editors, one in their 20s, one in their 30s, one in their 40s. I'm 52. And uh, someone asked me, who's going to be on your next podcast? And I said, Moby. And everyone knew play. Everyone had that record in a way. And so, you know, it is, I mean, it's true. You can't wave a wand and demand success and say, I'm going to sell 12 million records. But there is something about um, the sensibility that went into the creation of that record that did, in a sense, want to communicate something. It does seem like a record that wants to reach out and touch people in a way. Well, also because when I was making it, as you mentioned in the introduction, the record before play called Animal Rights had failed in every way that a record could fail. That's right. You know, got terrible reviews, sold nothing. I lost my record deal. So when I was making play, I just never for a second thought there was going to be an audience for it. And so there was kind of a wistful freedom around that. You know, like I, I was looking at lots of my friends who were doing incredibly well, and I thought, oh... You know, it's 1998. My mom just died. I've lost my record deal. I'm broke. I'm an alcoholic. I'll make this record, and I doubt anyone will ever pay attention to it, but let's see what happens. Yeah. And and there's – I can't – I mean, I don't have objectivity as regards yeah. me and my work, but I assume that that's sort of – the emancipation of defeat that oh, was involved in making the record had to imbue the emotional quality of the record. Now, porcelain is rare for a music memoir, but increasingly, I guess, not so rare because it's well-written by the musician themselves. I mean, recent, recent examples include, I suppose, Kim Gordon, Carrie Brownstein, Chrissy Hind, Patti Smith, of course, uh, Elvis Costello. But I think porcelain is more entertaining than those recent memoirs. It almost reads like a collection of almost standalone short stories. Each chapter is so kind of carefully crafted and has a kind of thematic element going through them that they can almost be read as standalone. Now, it's very, very fun until it begins to delineate the debauchery, and then it becomes a much more darker, blacker book. You know, mm-hmm. as you said, the disastrous reception of animal rights, the, a hilariously terrible relationship that you were in, uh, the death of your mother. And yet, I guess the thing that I really do like about Porcelain is that it doesn't really get bogged down to the kind of navel-gazing that Elvis Costello did with his memoir, where he just went into... Obs- he would spend five pages on some obscure track as if this was something the reader was dying to know. And there's yeah. a, there's a, there was a lot of... Um, I wouldn't say coldness, but navel-gazing in that. I, you tend to just share a lot and are kind of emotional, but you still have that kind of Gen X irony and coolness about you that hmm. gives the book a very pleasing neutrality. Um, and it's fun. But the downfall always occurs no matter who is writing. And one of the more depressing things in your book is kind of the downfall. And the, th- the thing that I can kind of, I guess, relate to in a way is the excitement of the first tour compared to the excitement of the last tour. Just kind of a great metaphor for, I guess, what happens to you when, you know, you begin to live a life like that. But I'm assuming you're a big reader. But this is the first large-scale piece of prose, I guess, you've written. Mm -hmm. And what I'm interested in is who influenced you and were the things that you wanted to avoid when writing this? What were the cliches you were afraid of if you were writing this? Or did you just not even self-censor yourself and just go ahead and write this thing? Well, when I first had the idea of writing a memoir, um, I thought I would do what most 
musicians do is get someone else to write it for me. You know, yes. I had this idea of like sitting down with someone once a week, drinking tea, telling them my stories. They would turn it into a book and I would take credit for it. And then my literary agent sort of pulled me aside and said, you know, you're descended from Herman Melville, which in no way from a hereditary perspective means you're going to write a good book, but you have to try. Like it would be an egregious hereditary affront to not try and write your own book, which I didn't want to do. I wanted someone else to write it for me so I could take the credit. Um, so he got me to write the book, and I had no idea if I was going to write something interesting or relevant but at the very least, I knew I could aspire to do two things, to be as honest as I possibly could and to make each chapter something that would hopefully hold up as a barroom anecdote. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, because yeah. before writing the book, I went out and read the beginnings of a lot of memoirs. And I found that sort of in reference to what you were saying, like they fail – a lot of them fail in that the writer – inherently assumes that their life has been interesting and that what they've done is known to lots of people. And so you're reading like an obscure book by an obscure musician. You're like, I don't even know your music that well. Why are you? Right. So I wanted to write something that was generous. And the book that inspired me the most was John Cheever's memoirs. But for readers, I mean, listeners, this is John Cheever's best book, I think, by the way. I mean, yeah. better than his fiction, even better than the short stories, I think. It really is an amazing piece of yeah. writing. The Journals of John Cheever. Yeah. yeah. The Journals of John Cheever. Because um, I, I grew up – I had that red paperback version of John Cheever's short stories, and I loved it. I, yes. Having grown up in Connecticut, like there was a lot of relevance and resonance there. But then – I read a lot of throwaway music memoirs, and then I read John Cheever's journals. And I thought to myself, like, here's one of the greatest writers in American history being unflinchingly honest. Oh, it's painful. It's a harrowing book. And I sort of thought to myself, if this lion of letters can be so honest, at the very least, I can aspire to be honest. And then I just thought, you know, if you write a book, you don't want to waste people's time. So I thought, I don't know if I'll write a good book, but at least let me write something honest that it in places might be entertaining and might represent sort of, as you were saying earlier, like a bygone era that actually didn't happen that long ago. Yeah. But economically, socially, demographically represents a New York that is long gone. Yes. The writer, Jonathan Ames, is a friend of both you and me, and I've known him since the late 80s and when he was becoming quasi-famous for his pieces mm-hmm. in the uh, very wild pieces in the New York press. About putting hairbrushes in his buttons. Yes, things like that. And on, and on this podcast, he felt that he at times now does not take certain stories because of – he didn't use the term politically correct. I'm not saying he did, but that we're in a moment where he feels – it's better to silence himself than have to deal with the roar of disapproval from the crowd, the social media crowd. And he just doesn't want to deal with those attacks. So in a weird way, he has self-censored himself. But he also has other things going on. He, has, he creates TV shows, and Jonathan has mm-hmm. a wonderful life. He does not need to go out and do that. But I do think, in a way, and, and I think part of the reason why I really responded to Porcelain is that we are missing a kind of fearlessness in the culture. We're missing the freak. We're missing the taboo. Everything seems to be so weighted down by a kind of corporate rule book in terms of how to express ourselves and in terms of how we have to behave. And if the freak or the person who wants to break the taboo goes out there now, he is punished. 
he loses his he loses his um, you know sponsorship. He's shunned by the media. Mm-hmm. He's humiliated. So if you kind of go against the status quo, you're attacked in this moment. And I guess it really depends on how thick your armor is or how rich you are. But did you ever feel during any of the moments that you were writing porcelain that there was stuff that you just could not put in? And then, and if so, without going into any detail, was there anything that you just had to like self-edit and that you just could not put in the book? Well, when I was writing the memoir, I was perfectly happy to throw myself under the bus. I just didn't feel ethically comfortable bringing anyone along with me. So I felt a little guilty in places in writing the book. Like there are some exes in the book who might I might not have written about that charitably. So I felt just awkward about that. Uh, in terms of self-editing, no. I mean, I want to be an agreeable interview subject and say that, yes, I self-edited this no, because of concerns about political correctness. My orientation towards social media changed, I guess, about 10 or 12 years ago is – I, being sort of narcissistic, I was online reading about myself. Of course. And I went to Gawker, and someone had written (laughs) some piece about me in Gawker that was mean. Yes. But then I read the comments, and there was one comment (laughs) where this guy said if he saw me on the street, he would stab me repeatedly and watch me bleed to death in the gutter. (laughs) And I read that, and I simply thought to myself, okay, there are three ways I can respond to this. One, I can find this person and drive him out to the Meadowlands Mm -hmm. and kill him slowly, which is what I wanted to do. (laughs) Two, I can find inner peace and enlightenment and transcend this vitriol. Or three, stop paying attention. So what I've done since then, I just don't read the comments. Like, for example, during the run-up to the last election, Hillary Clinton is an old friend of mine. Mm -hmm. We've worked together, and she's progressive, and Bernie Sanders was a great guy. I would have happily supported him, but I said a few things that were supportive of Hillary, and I was brought to my attention that people were not very fond of what I had said. And I was like – and this I was very confused. I was like, but she's pro-choice. She believes that climate change exists. Like she has a pretty, for the most part, impeccable progressive history. But some of the Bernie supporters – and it was so odd because I was like, Bernie's great, wonderful, Vermont, Jewish socialist. Amen to him. I'll support him if he gets – but I didn't know that like – the winnowing net of correctness had become that crazy where people were criticizing like it's the circular firing squad it kind of reminded me of on a lark not that i'm a communist but i went to a meeting of the american communist party at cooper union Mm -hmm. um this guy eric drucker was speaking and i've always liked his art And I got to listen to the old communists who were still arguing doctrinal points from the 30s and 40s. And I realized something. I was like, okay, one, no one cares. (laughs) Two, this is like the definition of a circular firing squad. And – And I just – so in popular culture, I think sort of – I was listening to what you were talking about earlier. There's this bizarre, insular, provincial relationship that people have with their emotions and their screen. You know, Mm. so people sit in front of their screen and they go on Reddit or they go wherever and they get so caught up in these debates. But no one's listening. No one cares. And the world is not being – the only way the world is being changed is by these people being absent from the world. And I sort of feel like if you actually 
care. If you want to make the world a better place, you have to be engaged in the world in a pragmatic way that holds up when you apply criteria to your actions. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. And so that's my biggest issue with a lot of political correctness is simply how pointless it is. Like yes. if it's if it's not achieving goals, you know, broadly defined goals for the individual, for the culture, then why waste your time with it, you know? Yeah. I mean, who on their deathbed wants to be remembered? Like, they're on their deathbed and they want to find, like, personal satisfaction in knowing that they commented a lot and they got three <laughs> responses. Like, who? it's it's such a waste of a person's life. I know. And being a top cultural commenter on some of these message boards, you know, when I, uh, when I see who those people are, it always amuses me. But, yeah, you got to watch the message boards. I mean, you've got to certainly, um, you know, grow a, a thick skin if you want to deal or with just, that all. It, it, like, I just choose this like naive you know east la ignorance i'm like oh i do stuff post a picture of me and hillary just don't read the comments well, well look i mean this the thing happens even if you're on twitter where the comments really aren't hidden from you you get the comments in your feed and it's you don't really have to search for them they're just there on your feed and i just did something very innocuous uh, the other night i tweeted about this hbo show the night of and how i oh yeah uh, how i just thought yeah, the finale i watched it last night yeah i just thought that the future really is no longer the two-hour movie theatrical going experience. Mm -hmm. And that the night of, to me, kind of represented the moment this clarified it for me. That, okay, this is how you can tell a story. And that you maybe need eight and a half or nine hours to tell this particular story. And you would want to. Now, there are certainly movies like Florence Foster Jenkins that does mm -hmm. not need more than an hour and 45 minutes. And it's a kind of perfect theatrical thing. But when I tweeted this... Uh, there were, of course, people who automatically agreed, and then the trolls came out, and the haters came out and said, how dare you say this? I mean, how dare you think that this should replace the theatrical or, you know, experience or, or the two-hour movie? This is the dumbest thing I've ever heard. And it basically lasts for about you know eight hours, and you can either deal with it or choose not to deal with yeah. it. But it's just – it is the language, and it's not something that anyone should – be so offended by in a way because it's such a natural part of the evolution of your opinion going out. They're not. Oh, there, one, to, yeah, that, to that point, please. one thing that I've learned uh, is like when I first, and this is like going back to like 99, 2000, when I first found myself on the receiving end of online vitriol, mm -hmm. I took it very personally. Right. What's happened over time is I realized if you do anything in public someone's going to hate hate you for it like you could live in the suburb of columbus ohio and put out a volume of self-published poetry someone will hate you for it yes you know but don't you think this also um that comes with the advent of age that i feel i just i feel freer now at 52 than i did oh, yeah. at 42 i just don't care i don't have to maintain a pose anymore and i find that things like that just are go right off my shoulder in a way that admittedly they didn't at 36 that I took seriously. Yeah. And that, that one, of the, one of the good things about getting over your, uh, your youth and your various midlife crises is, is that you get to this stage. Yes, I, I completely agree. <laughs> and I also had this realization, I guess about 10 years ago, is towards the end of when I was reading – I don't read reviews anymore. I don't read mm -hmm. comments. Um, one of the last reviews I ever read it was a really snarky, scathing review of a record I had made. Mm -hmm. And I got very upset. So for like the next couple of hours, I was so like 
mad and frustrated that that unique type of like anger and sadness you get when someone slanders yeah. you online mm-hmm. and then all of a sudden i had this little voice in the back of my head and said you have just you being me in this case like i have just ignored the trillion wonderful things in my life and i've outsourced my happiness to someone i've never met so like i've ignored the fact that like i had a good night's sleep last night that i'm healthy that I've got a refrigerator full of food and good friends, mm-hmm. an interesting life that I care about. But instead, I've just given like my emotional well-being to this guy in front of a computer in Michigan who I, have n- I will never meet in person or talk to. So like, it was, the, the absurdity of that really struck me. The 70s childhood, ABBA, Bob Seger, The Eagles, Wings, Barry White, Donna Summer... Love Hangover by Diana Ross is the first song you mentioned in Porcelain as kind of a signifier to what pop music could achieve for you. Aural pleasure, mystery, a view into adult world mm-hmm. sex. Could you explain why the song was the moment you realized something? I know you talk about it in the book, but I'm just uh, I'm interested in what was it about that moment, sitting in that car, having that song be the thing that sparked things off in a way for you well like you i assume and like lots of people i grew up obsessed with am radio oh yes in the early late 60s early 70s like and and i don't remember ever disliking a song oh no like if it was played on the radio i loved it so i'd be sitting in the car while my mom was like smoking cigarettes or like driving to the supermarket or what have you like and just whatever was on the radio i loved one thing that made me very uncomfortable growing up was anything sexual or sensual you know i don't know if you ever had this experience like you're watching sanford and son or the love boat and there's like an explicit sex reference and you're watching it with your mom you're watching it with family members and you just you at least i would feel so uncomfortable so anything pertaining to sex and sensuality and when i was growing up really made me uncomfortable mm-hmm. i grew up and, in la yeah. <laughs> so you had a different relationship yeah, yeah. <laughs> um and so i had this experience i was about i guess nine years old sitting in the car we had like this beat up i think it was a chevy vega and my mom was in the laundromat folding clothes because we would do our neighbor's laundry and i was sitting in the car middle of march and if you've ever been in connecticut in march it's disgusting like it's cold and there's gray snow melting everywhere and there's this heavy leaden dark sky and i was sitting in the car damp and cold bored spinning the radio and i heard love hangover and on one hand i knew it was about sex and that scared me but then it was also on the radio and i loved the radio and then finally it sounded futuristic and i had been obsessed with anything science fiction mm-hmm. and futuristic growing up space 1999 star wars star trek etc and so the fact that it was on the radio and the fact that it was futuristic opened me to the fact that it had sensuality to it and it was the first time that i ever felt like a degree of comfort around anything sensual or sexual and also it sounded so clean to me mm-hmm. and it represented a world that was so far away from this sad defeated suburban laundromat parking lot in Connecticut in March so that's that was the significance of that song and why 
I wanted to open the book with it. Were there other groups from that era that you also liked as much? Because I think back on that that time, and and it really is the argument that so many of our peers or people our age make all the time is that music today sucks. It's not as good as it was when we were teenagers or young adults. And they're, they're pretty much convinced of this, that all mainstream music now, all pop singles are bad. And that perhaps is tied into, I think, aging. And I think the fact that many people think the songs that you discover in your adolescence and young adulthood is the music that stays with you forever. That's kind of what the argument is. Mm -hmm. But I don't know if this is true. I don't know if, I mean, maybe I haven't grown up, unlike my friends who are 52 and who have kids, maybe because I'm gay and single, I have a different kind of viewpoint about stuff. But I mean, I... I know that in, I guess, in 2015, I like Courtney Barnett, and I like the cast recording to Hamilton, and I like Kamasi Washington, and I liked a couple of singles by Grimes. And, I mean, there was stuff out there that I mm -hmm. responded to. I mean, jo Joanna Newsom wrote a good song called Drivers that I love. There's stuff out there if you're willing to make the investment, make the time to look for it. I don't know. And this also just takes me back to the idea of how disposable everything seems now, is that there seems to be a certain kind of lack of investment. There was a certain kind of investment in terms of going to buy the book, waiting in line to see the movie, purchasing the album, listening to the album on your bed while you're looking at the whatever the liner yeah. knows. Without that lack of an investment uh, where you can just like download a book on your Kindle, you can just like, you know, t $10 used to get you 13 songs. That's pretty much what it was. Ten dollars now gets you twenty million songs. So I don't know. There's a strange relationship that we have with art now that we didn't pre. Oh, absolutely. And I, I, I think it's definitely a function of that. Like I remember growing up buying records, and I remember buying my first David Bowie record, and it didn't make sense to me. But I had invested $7 in it, so I listened to it until it made sense to me. Like my assumption when I was listening to this David Bowie record, Lodger, was, okay, I'm a 12-year-old in the suburbs. I don't understand this. It's my fault. You know? <laughs> like he's David yes. Bowie. He's a sophisticated man from England who has a record deal. If I don't get it, there's something wrong with me. Also, I'd spent $7 on it, so I listened to it until – it made sense to me. Like I realized, like I, I realized he was sophisticated. I wasn't. I'm going to invest my time in him and this music. And now I feel like a song, like your average 13 year old or, or whomever, gives a song five seconds. And why not? And they just move on. And there's, I think another big variable is culture, like music, art, literature, what have you, didn't have as much competition when we were growing up. Yes. You know, and yes. now, like, a 15 year old kid has so many profoundly compelling things in his life. You know, he yes. has Snapchat, he has Instagram, he has Facebook, he has instant messaging, he has every song you could ever want. He could have, you know, three podcasts going, Vine. Like, if there's so much competing. So you just, how is that person ever going to sit down? And lose themselves in a book. How is that person ever going to sit down and commit themselves to understanding a record that at first listen doesn't make sense to them? Well, still thinking about that time in the mid-70s, I mean, I always think about the Eagles because I guess Hotel California along with Fleetwood Max Rumors were my first two pop records that I became invested in at 12 uh, 1976, I guess. And, um, you know, the Eagles are derided. And yes, they maybe never made anything as formally invented. Who derides the Eagles? I don't know. 
I, Everybody is, loves the Eagles. I love the Eagles. Who doesn't love the Eagles? I love the Eagles, too. But it's a question that I've asked of all my guests on this show. And it started when I, when I had Stephen Malkmus on from Pavement. And I was kind of defending the Eagles. And he just went into this kind of, I must admit, hilarious diatribe about how much he hated the Eagles and how they were. How do you hate the Eagles? <laughs> and how they were greedy, hippie, uh, whatever. Um Cowboys and anyway, it was it was funny. But ever since then, I've asked every guest about what they think about the Eagles. And yes, they never made anything as formally inventive as Tusk, perhaps. And that's kind of the argument against the Fleetwood Mac. Why Fleetwood Mac is so kind of beloved now, in a way, and that the Eagles are by a, a certain a, a certain person of the intelligentsia is often derided. I happen to love the Eagles as well, but I was just wondering, you know, I've been thinking about them a lot because of the death of Glenn Fry, but what do you think of the Eagles? <laughs> I mean, I grew up, I think the issue that, here's what I would say, is I think the issue that people have with the Eagles is the lack of consistency or cohesion like the Eagles don't immediately stand – they stand for L.A. in the 70s. But the fact that they had like four or five singers and songwriters, yeah. that's unprecedented. You know, like normally with – I mean Fleetwood Mac had three or four singers. But like there was that – there was some weird cohesion to it. And the Eagles, there are a couple of Eagles songs that I truly don't care about. Yes. Then there are some that are so – I mean like I heard Life in the Fast Lane the other that day. And I was like it perfect. felt like yeah. – Time travel. I, like I wasn't in LA in '76. Clearly, yeah. I was in suburban, mm-hmm. sad Connecticut. But like, I felt immediately like I was like snorting coke in Malibu mm-hmm. in a redwood <laughs> hot tub. And it and I heard Desperado the other day, mm-hmm. and it brought tears to my eyes. Like, yeah. how can how can you hate? A band that created mm-hmm. Desperado, Life in the Fast Lane, Hotel California. Mm-hmm. There's so many wonderful songs. I know. And and the fact I, I just watched there was a documentary on the Eagles, the big long one, the yeah, before, yeah. And they came from like wonderful, humble Echo Park beginnings. You know, they had that like apartment with Jackson Brown oh, right, and yeah. Echo Park, and it was like you can't judge like you can't say oh like it's sort of like the equivalent of judging David Bowie based on Let's Dance, right. you know, perfectly right. fine record. Right. But if you decontextualize it, yeah. It doesn't stand up. Same thing, like you can't judge the Eagles on them playing a Microsoft corporate event. You have to right. judge them on sitting in their unair conditioned apartment in Echo Park writing Desperado. Well, isn't this gets back to the idea of ideology versus aesthetics, that people yeah. are so wrapped up in the ideology of an artist of that moment that they kind of ignore the aesthetics to a degree. Now I'm, when I'm driving home, I'm going to listen to Eagles on Spotify because <laughs> you've just like it. I mean, of course, there are those one or two songs. But it's with the same thing. Like you mentioned Bob Seger earlier. Oh, yeah. Like Bob Seger, I love, unironically, unapologetically, I love Bob Seger. I do too. I do if too. If I'm listening to Bob Seger's greatest hits, I don't listen to rock and roll, never forget. Or, no. I listen you know. to Beautiful Loser. I listen to Still the Same. I listen to Hollywood Nights. No, I know. I mean, it's like, yeah, a yeah. pretty awesome catalog. Even into the early 80s, there's some Roll Me Away is a great song. There's that one song, We've Got Tonight. We've Got Tonight, <sighs> yeah. yeah. Full, one of the most beautiful, it's, and it's so existential. You know, yeah. I was just listening to it the other day, and the lyrics are like, it's this defeated man and this defeated woman alone in a bar. And it stands as such a sort of like, it's a metaphor for this like, existential crisis in the face of the void oh yes like they're just saying like you know what there is the void 
and it does not embrace us. It doesn't shun us. It's just there. The only thing, like it's sort of like like the evolution of Camus through his fictions. Like the only thing we have is our solidarity and connection with each other, because the void seems to be indifferent. I'm not maybe I'm overanalyzing a Bob Seger pop song, but I don't think so. Porcelain, and it's 1989, and before you move to Manhattan, when you think about getting out of Stamford, uh, where you are basically living as a squatter, mm-hmm. and it's getting dangerous, and someone asks you where you will go if you have to move out of the building you're squatting in, and you say, just very off the top of your head, maybe I'll move to Brooklyn or the Lower East Side of Manhattan. And I had to laugh reading this in 2016, especially having just been back to New York this past April, after being away for many years to uh, check in the apartment that I still own on 13th Street. We lived around the corner from each other in, the ni- in I think, 1990 when you were on 14th Street and I was on 13th Street between 3rd Avenue and 4th Avenue. Oh, we were literally like rock-throwing distance. Yes. Because I was 14th between 2nd and 3rd. And were- I was 13th between 3rd and 4th. Okay, which is actually a lot nicer than 13th between 3rd and 2nd. 13th between 3rd and 2nd Correct. was... That's like Taxi Driver. Well, actually, I think Taxi Driver shot the climactic scene mm-hmm. actually between 3rd and 4th in 1976 oh, okay. because they go past the Variety Theater. Then the Variety Theater was on that block. Oh, I loved that Variety. I, <laughs> that Variety Theater was such a remarkable. I saw Julie Cruz perform there. I saw so many amazing shows there. It's also – there is – such a strange, upsetting historical detail to that theater. Um, I forget his name. Oh, he was a filmmaker. He inspired Fellini. He inspired John Waters. He inspired, like... American? Yes. He was a, a gay performance artist, filmmaker, sort of in the same ilk as Kenneth Anger. Mm-hmm. And he, his last act of performance art was to go to the Variety Theater to contract HIV. That was his la- like he decided in the late 80s he was like this is going to be my final <laughs> performance. I was going to say Jack Smith. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. I think it was Jack Smith. And that was his so whenever I would walk by the Variety Theater I would think 
Was he responsible for Flaming Creatures, was he? Yeah, was, Flaming Creatures. That's, I know exactly what you're talking about. Yeah, Flaming Creatures, which inspired Fellini. Yeah, you, you watch, like, Satyricon, and then you watch Flaming Creatures, like, oh, Fellini was just like an, an homage to Jack Smith, essentially. But it's just interesting because we both left New York after mm-hmm. having pretty long runs there. Uh, I think I stayed there a little less longer than you did. About 18 years I, I lived in New York, and then I moved back to L.A., well, why? I mean, initially, two things for me. The party was over at a certain point. I had a good run, but New York just did not speak to me in the way that it used to. Mm-hmm. And it was also easier to find debauchery in it for me than it was here in L.A. But why did you leave ultimately? And why did you relocate here? And I don't see it. Some of my friends in New York see it as a, as a kind of defeat. I don't at all. I see it as a kind of door opening. Yeah. I, well, I was born in Harlem on ni- in 1965. And I thought I would live in New York forever. You know, when I was growing up in the 70s and the 80s, like everything that interested me had happened there, was happening there, whether it was the Velvet Underground or Basquiat or, I mean, my favorite books were written by New Yorkers. And then living there in the 90s, it just was so, it was cheap and it was dirty and it was filled with artists and writers and musicians. And it felt so central, like you could get to Europe easily, you could get to L.A. easily, you could get to South America and Asia. Like it just felt like this epicenter of the world. And then at some point, I guess about 10 years ago, well, I got sober and I very quickly realized New York is paradise if you're a drunk. Completely. And kind of a difficult place to be if you're sober. Completely agree. And so I just... I had a whole I, I suddenly realized that my priorities shifted and I just became much less interested in the I mean New York is a wonderful place and I don't want to demean it or of denigrate course. it or slander it but like it's it is deeply provincial it looks in at itself you know it's like it's essentially like a walled medieval city except the wall is water and a moat yeah it's a giant moat <laughs> so New York loves New York and New York loves the things that New Yorkers make and which is one they make amazing things but as time has passed I think I just became more interested in the rest of the world and LA apart from the fact that it's warm in the winter is filled with such bafflingly odd people you know I mean we have David Lynch and we have Shepard Ferry and we have Kenneth Anger and we I mean like it's a there is there's such a incomprehensible strangeness to Los Angeles, and the ge- even the geographic elements. You know, the fact that like we have two million acres of mountainous state parks in LA County, and we have desert, and we have bizarre beaches, and we have Latino culture and Russian culture, and so much oddness. And I think the main thing that keeps me here—it's like two things. One, comfort, because you can be very comfortable here. You can have like. You know, for what you would spend on a studio apartment in New York, you can have a four-bedroom house with a pool and trees outside. So that's nice. But there is a sort of Byzantine strangeness to Los Angeles that never bores me. Even if it's even if LA is boring, at its core, I'm not bored because I know that something odd, wrong, complicated, and baffling is going on somewhere. And to be a little esoteric about it, I like the fact that L.A. is one of the only cities on the planet that is surrounded by non-human environments. 
You know, like when you're in Europe, if you're in Brussels, and I love Brussels, not trying to make enemies of the Belgians, but like if you're in Brussels or you're in New York or you're in Milan or you're wherever, all your neighbors are human. You know, you throw a rock and you hit another city, you know, and so like you start having this very anthropocentric view of the universe. L.A., you drive a few miles in one direction and you are in a desert that does not support human life that is billions of acres large. And there's something existentially relevant and fascinating about that. That's why I'm an Angelino.